Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the honor and pleasure to welcome John Coyle today. He is actually my second Winter Olympic athlete. I couldn't be more excited to have him. He is an expert on innovation and design thinking and best-selling author of Design for Strengths and The Art of Really Living Manifesto. He is a two-time TEDx presenter. He's also known as the time guy and a thought leader in the field of chronoception, the study of how humans process time. His mission is to innovate the human experience. He teaches innovation classes at Northwestern Marquette and the University Graduate School in Mexico. And he also is an NBC sports analyst. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tiffany. It's great to be here. I really wanted to say in there that in your early teens, you were the state champion in seven sports simultaneously. However, <laughs> I didn't want everybody listening to feel like, wow, I was one in one and I thought I was really awesome. So <laughs> it was like really seven simultaneously, a slight overachiever in athletics, I must say, right? Well, none of them are uh, sports requiring any hand-eye coordination, so we do have... Oh, you just took one of my bullish and bearish. Okay, so hold that thought. Don't say anything else. Okay, so we're going to jump into bullish and bearish, and it will cover uh, what you might like in bullish and bearish is what you sort of maybe don't agree with. So nothing too stressful. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So the first one is, could a robot beat the world record in speed skating? Could a robot beat the world's record in speed skating? I would say uh, bullish on that for sure. Oh, so, you know, it's interesting to watch how they start to get these more human skills, like even going left and right with their legs as you did as a speed skater, right? I mean, it's, you know, getting better, but it'll be interesting to see what, what they'll be able to do from a sports perspective. It wouldn't be pretty, but no. I'm sure with, <laughs> with pretty. the power of, you know, the uh, the robot, they can overcome the ugliness of the technique. Yes, probably. I, I, I can't wait until someone listens to this podcast and then, you know, sort of works that out and, and we'll see what happens. All right. The next one. Time passes faster as you age. Bullish or bearish? Totally bearish. I hate this. This is my life's mission is to reverse this. So don't like it at all. Okay, good. Fair enough. I was uh, thinking you would answer that. And then the third one, which you almost blew in the opening. So <laughs> hand-eye coordination is the key to an athlete's success. Absolutely bearish. There are plenty <laughs> of sports that require none. I'm a praying mantis of a human being. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just want to, I want to, you know, start by having you before we get into sort of all the nitty gritty of the of the uh, time and, and strengths and all of that, you just give a one or two minute on sort of what sports you, you know, were so famous for, but more importantly, sort of your experience at the Olympics. Yeah. Well, I grew up as a cyclist and uh, a little backstory there. If you think, if you believe in the 10,000 hour rule at all, um, my, my father bought me a, a nice bike when I was eight and I started joining him on some tours and I ended up doing 13 century rides the summer when I was eight. So how many kids on the planet did 13 100 mile rides? Probably one. Um, so I got my time on the bike in early and and you may know that speed skating and cycling are sort of sister sports. So if you're good at cycling or you'll probably be good at skating and, and vice versa, they're very, they both require 
no hand-eye coordination and lots of leg power. So I uh, started doing both. I started skating when I was 10, or at least speed skating. I've been skating on like since I was three and uh, proceeded to achieve uh, world championship level in both. But that's as far as I went with cycling and put all of my eggs in the speed skating basket in my 20s in order to go to the Olympics where I brought home a silver medal. Well, it's just fantastic. You know, when I was a kid, I was I was also uh, not an athlete to your level, but like athletics was sort of my release. Like it's, I was an only child. It's where I made friends. It's where I learned sort of how to be coached, how to win with, you know, your head held high and humility and where how to lose with your head held high and, you know, with grace and, you know, all those sort of skills. I think athletics is a great thing and a precursor for success in business, my personal opinion anyway. Uh but I always said, oh, I wish I could make it to the Olympics. But I was never good enough in one. But it could have also just had to do with I, I might have been good enough had I actually put the effort in. <laughs> but I think that might have been the problem. Or found the so. right sport. I mean, that's the other challenge is you can't really know what you're good at until you try a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of sports. Yeah. And, and I, I was a... Mm, I was a 10 letter winner in high school. So I played a lot wow. of sports. Yeah, it, it was, you know, it, it was just, I, I, I think that, uh, I think at the end of the day, you know, there's just so many people are so talented. Uh, you just have to be really, really exceptional if that's going to become, you know, your future way as an adult to, uh, to make a living and to make it, you know, sort of make a mark in the world. So I, I commend you for making it that far and, and bringing home a, a medal for the United States. So you know, thank you for everything that you did in that front. Thank you. Well, so let's let's dig into this because I found your story fascinating. And it, and it was really the reason I reached out and said, hey, I'd love to have you on the podcast because uh, you're thinking around, you know, using design thinking that you learned from your college days and applying that to your athletics, I thought was fascinating. And so maybe you can step us through you know, when that aha moment came between connecting those two things. Um, but before you do, maybe you can sort of define design thinking for those out there that aren't familiar with the concept. Oh, for sure. So yeah, design thinking was was a, a phrase coined by a guy named David Kelly from Stanford. He's head of, head of Stanford's D school, the head of IDEO. He was also a key player with Steve Jobs and Apple, particularly in the early days in the design of the, the mouse and the Macintosh and others. Um, design thinking is in concept quite simple. It's a, it's a process and a mindset, and both of those are important. Um, but the process is quite simple, at least in, in terms of framing it up. So I'll define it in 10 seconds. It's first, you have to accept you have a problem. Then you have to define what it is and actually understand it fully. Third, you have to have empathy for the person, situation, customer you're solving for. That often goes missing. Uh, then you, uh, um, uh, you ideate, you generate ideas on how you might solve this problem differently than in the past. And then finally, you test, prototype, and repeat. Very simple process, um, but the mindset sitting behind it around the designer's mindset is this re weird combination of very detached, scientific, analytical, uh, lack of uh, desire to anchor to one particular solution in the early days, and then a very human-centric, passionate approach to ideating and testing once you've selected an approach. So it's it's a weird combination of mindsets. But how this all sort of played out in my life is I, I stumbled into product design at Stanford and eventually had David Kelly actually as my academic advisor. So by age 19, I was pretty steeped in this process and mindset. 
fast forward to my senior year, I managed to get uh, 12th place in the world in speed skating, despite being in California with no coach and no training program, very little ice time. So when I graduated and joined the Olympic team full time, I had two years to prepare for the games. And uh, I worked very hard to do the program that they laid out. But that program was really tailored at fixing my weaknesses, which are many and varied. And after two years, I had gone from 12th in the world to 34th in the world to not even making the team two years later, finishing 30th in the U.S. trials that I had won two years prior. So at that point, I backed into my design thinking and started thinking about, wait, am I solving the wrong problem? Maybe a better problem to solve for instead of fixing my weaknesses or going farther faster might be, how do I design for my strengths, which is anaerobic power? And uh, so I decided to change my technique. I quit the team, not the sport, trained all by myself for an entire year. And the first race back in the same meet as the year prior, the Olympic trials, but in a non-Olympic year, in the first race back, I broke the U.S. record by five and a half seconds and skated more than a second faster than the world record. And there's so many lessons in that whole thing right there. Like I would love to just unpack and keep this going for a long time. So I'm going to try to pick a few sure. key ones because often what I hear from individual contributors or managers when they're in the middle of their career is, you know, I'm being told to do something a certain way or... I hear that the way I'm doing it isn't the way we mm -hmm. do it here. Or I hear, you know, we tried that five years ago and it didn't work, right? All these reasons why people who kind of buck the status quo for whatever reason are not welcomed with open arms from, in this case, coaches and teams in the business world, it's leaders, managers, or just current mm -hmm. processes, right? Just an internal inertia, if you will. Yep. And I think that one lesson alone, when you went back and you shattered it, uh, shows that, you know, understanding, I had a friend of mine on the podcast, her name's Naomi Simpson. She's a shark in Shark Tank Australia. And she calls weaknesses her non-strengths. <laughs> she does not use the word weakness. And you can totally borrow that because I love it. Yeah. I love you know, non-strength instead of using the word weakness. And she divides and conquers her business with, she focuses on her strengths. And then she has, you know, the, uh, you know, a chief executive uh, of the company that picks up all the stuff that are her non-strengths. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And the combination of the two of them makes it work. Yeah. Right. And when she tried to do things that were not her strengths, which this is sort of the backup of this, she didn't do well at all. I mean, she, you know, even though she's very successful, it trying to correct those behaviors was not a good thing for her in business. And so step through the next thing. So you shattered all these records yeah, because you stepped out and said, there has to be a way for me to take my non-strengths and use it to my benefit. Right. And I think what you did though was also really interesting. So would you mind just double clicking into what you did that gave yourself that advantage? Yeah. So I, most of the athletes in speed skating at the time were what we would call aerobic athletes. They have very high uh, capacity to process oxygen and good endurance. That was the opposite. I had no capacity to process oxygen and, and no endurance, but I did have one little superpower, which was uh, a very explosive for short intervals. And in my sport of short track speed skating, the way people were skating was a way to maximize, maximize their aerobic capacity by skating a big wide track where they minimize the G forces in the corners, which are very significant. They're up to three G's. 
And in so doing, they were going about 12, 11% farther than strictly necessary. Much the way, by the way, NASCAR drivers uh, race the course. They set up wide going in, come out wide, coming out of the corners. And I thought, you know, if I could dive into each corner, I wouldn't necessarily go any faster. I would just go less far. And it would require a huge burst of anaerobic power in the corner, the only thing in the world I'm good at. So I just started skating, frankly, just less far. I honestly wasn't going any faster. But because I was skating such a tighter track, I could go less far, less fast and still win. Well, and, and when I was reading up on what you guys do going around that track and, and just you kind of quickly just blasted right past the G-Force, like give, give people, give our listeners sort of an understanding of how fast you're going in those corners. It's like going from what, zero to 60 and like, what was it, like two seconds in a car or something? Yeah. So you enter a corner going 30, 33 miles an hour going one direction and two seconds later exactly, you exit going 33 miles an hour the opposite direction which is zero to 66 in two seconds, which no car on the planet can accelerate at. And no car on the planet can pull those kind of Gs. So if you do the math, uh, the velocity squared divided by the radius of eight meters gives you uh, a G-force metric of three Gs. So it's triple your body weight. And the other sort of compounding problem is you're on ice, headed directly at a wall, leaned over at 70 degrees. So I break it all the way down for you. It is equivalent to the following. You're never on two legs. So it is a for a 166-pound skater, it's a 500-pound one-legged squat from deeper than 90 degrees while leaned over at 70 degrees, traveling 33 miles an hour on ice on an 18-inch long, one-millimeter wide blade headed directly at a wall. It's kind of hard. Yeah, so like I read that. I read it like three times. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, from afar, right, when I was a kid watching Eric Hyden and, and, and most recently, uh, you know all of the skaters and you just see the power in just their human, their thighs right. are like tree trunks. Right. And now it totally makes sense as to, to why that, yeah. that was the case. Um, and so, you know, you found your strength, right? So you, yeah. you, you leaned away from your non-strength, doubled right. down on your strength and what happened when you went back? So now we're going to tie this back to business, right? The example I was just talking about, you sort of found your way. Now you come back into the fold and what happens? You come back to the team. Yeah, that, that didn't go the way I hoped um, because when you buck the system, the system spits you out. So I was training on my own for about two months and there was a lot of rumblings and people were unhappy. Why does he still get to be sort of part of the team, but not train with the team? So I decided to sort of smooth things over by going to a training camp with the team in Lake Placid. I drove 18 hours to get there. I skated for two hours with the team. And then the coach skated up to me uh, after the first session of what was supposed to be a week-long training effort. And he said, I'm sorry, John, but the team and skaters have voted. You have to go home. So my own team voted me off the island. Um, but that's what happens when you buck the system and, and do things your own way. And honestly, it was perhaps the best thing that could have happened to me because it's really hard to be, stay motivated when you have no coach and nobody making you show up. And after that, I was so sort of rattled and angry and driven that every morning I would get up and give a single finger salute to Lake Placid and get on the ice and do my workouts. And I didn't skip any after that. Well, so a couple of things, right? So it's, you know, they were trying to correct your non-strengths. Correct. And not focusing in on things that you were really, that you were unique on. I mean, you were even, I think one of the things said that you even had a higher capacity than that, you know, in the short burst, right. Then a Lance Armstrong at the time on the bike. Right. And so, sure. 
uh, you know, instead of doubling down on where you had the strengths, they tried to fix you and it never really came around for you. They just kept trying to fix the non-strength versus focusing in on the strength. So you leave, you do it your way, you blow out the numbers, you come back, they go, yeah, no, you, you leave again, you come back. And and then they say, well, we're going to once again, try to fix your non-strengths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so many lessons in that because in the end of that, what happened? Well, I mean, the end of that was that after bringing home the silver medal in the first Olympics and, and practicing and mastering this track for a few years, I did rejoin the team and went back to the old way of training. And they they wore me out so so badly by the time the Olympic trials came around, I ended up not making the team. And uh, that was a really huge disappointment. Yeah. And so once again, you know, thinking about uh, those listening and I, and I've had this happen to me where there's a manager who just doesn't take advantage of what strengths you bring and, and spend so much time on the things that are your non-strengths and trying to help you correct what those were and what those are. Uh, And, and it gets you on this hamster wheel of never feeling like you're good enough, like you're going to be successful, like they value you, right? Because you're constantly chasing what you're not actually good at doing. Right. right. And I remember many years ago, I, I, I came to the conclusion that I'm not very good at, at sort of the P&L operation side of being a leader, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I went and took a class around how to do that. I took a finance class and, and it just nothing about it excited me. Like I just it just was not my thing. Like if there was nothing about it that even interests me at all, I needed to know enough of it to bring someone on kind of like to bring that partner on to be my, you know, the yin to my yang. Right. Um, of if I'm on the creative side, you can be on the numbers side and the sales and marketing side, you can be on the numbers side and you know what I mean? And so as long as there's a lot of trust and bringing those two things together, but uh, I had, I have had multiple managers who um, actually tried to suppress the side of me that was a strength and never, and tried to just only focus on the side that was my non-strength and try to correct it. That's very common. Yeah. And so, and so what, what now, you know, those lessons that you've brought forward, right? You've written two books, you know, you're coaching, you're out, you know, sharing these sort of design thinking uh, as well as your Olympic experience. How have those two things combined? Well, the thing that really sort of emerges, has emerged for me is that whenever, and, and I think this is true very broadly, whenever you're stuck trying to solve a, particularly a complex problem, it can be in personal life, it can be in business, it can be in a relationship, it can be anywhere. Um, more often than not, when people are not making progress, I think it's because they're solving the wrong problem. And so you can spend all the time you want, you can have all the right answers to the wrong question and it doesn't matter. And so that's what design thinking gives you is this perspective to back up and say, wait a minute, am I trying to, am I solving the right problem? And by the way, as David Evans from Stanford would put it, um, some problems are gravity problems. Uh, gravity problems are, are as such as follows. Oh, gravity, it's weighing me down. Oh, it's so tiring to climb up these stairs. If there just wasn't gravity, life would be so much better. Um, <laughs> some problems are their gravity problems. They're, they're insurmountable. And by the way, one of those, as I'm sure you know well, is quote, other people, end quote, you can't solve other people, right? That, that's a gravity problem. So if you find yourself agonizing over trying to solve somebody else the way they show up or should show up or what have you, that's, that's a gravity problem. Um, but the, the inverse of that, of course, is that 
sometimes we're solving wrong problems. And, and this is a couple other talks that I do is the first one, as you know, is instead of trying to fix weaknesses, which is a very common approach, how do we design for our strengths? Another one that is just so ubiquitous right now, which is like, oh, work-life balance. I just, there's too much going on. I have too much stress in my life. And, you know, how do I reduce my stress so I can perform better? And, you know, news alert, it's not slowing down, right? This, this world isn't getting any easier and it's not getting any slower. And so another talk I do is instead of how do I reduce stress to perform better, how do I perform better under greater stress and learn to like it? So this is what design thinking gives you as a way to reframe commonly asked questions in a way that's more productive. And, and so how do you sort of, uh, you know, so the couple of people that are listening, right? It's an individual contributor, first time manager, middle manager, and then executive, you know, are there different pieces of advice uh, in those various, you know, phases of someone's career or pretty consistent? I would say in this case, uh, at least the kinds of questions I ask and answer are pretty consistently broad against all levels. I mean, everybody's got a time poverty problem, like everybody. And this idea that you're going to get your wrap your arms around um, next week, next month by working harder or using technology to speed up your capacity. Um, that's a misnomer. Like that's an error. That's a fallacy. It doesn't work that way. The technology only increases the pace. And so reframing that question to how do I perform under better under greater stress or how do I, instead, you know, the other question I ask and answer, which is my favorite is instead of more years in your life, which a lot of people are working on in terms of diet and exercise and all kinds of good things, those are fine. Um, but a more important and better question I think is how do I get more life in my years in the way, in terms of the way you perceive time passing in this thing we talked about at the beginning that time accelerates for most adults. 98% of adults across all cultures feel that time accelerates the older they get. Well, that's, that's not okay by me. So there's ways to reverse that as well. Well, interesting. Cause I, you know, I had uh, Dan Pink on the podcast a little bit ago and he wrote that book about sort of time of day mm -hmm. impacting mm -hmm. performance and, you know, whether it's students don't do well testing in the morning, should we test them in the afternoon? You know, he even had a suggestion of, you know, have a, have an espresso, one shot of espresso, take a nap, wake up 15 minutes right, later and you're right. ready to go. Right. <laughs> so, you know, his was just how to be, uh, more, uh, aware and productive during the time, but it's, it's impossible it, this I'm using his, his right. thinking here, right. That it's impossible to be firing on all cylinders, like, you know, all 12 hours or whatever of your waking day or all your nine hours of your working day right, or whatever right. it might be. And so is it time of day as well as the maximizing of doing those things that, uh, you know, don't make it feel like, you know, it, it time is moving faster. Well, you know, this is relatively new neuroscience, but the way that time perception or chronoception, uh, works is it's around memory storage and retrieval. And so, uh, the amount of memories you store. So what gets stored? Sometimes you store nothing. Like if you drive to work and you find yourself in the parking lot and you don't know how you got there. Well, that's because your brain decided there was nothing novel or interesting enough to store. So that's actually lost time. That's like wasted time. It's like you weren't actually alive. And then, all right, so what was stored? How much? So lots and lots of data is better than just a little data. And then almost as important or maybe more important is, can you retrieve it? So you might store things, but the way the brain works is it makes all kinds of these little weird connections all wired around in the brain. And so you might store something, but you can't find it without the help of the hypnotist. So that's also lost time. So 
highly retrievable memories full of data that are easily found, those are the kinds of memories that expand time. And those, by the way, require some level of either risk or uncertainty or fear or highly charged emotions. These are the summers of an eight-year-old, by the way, that I'm describing, right? Everything's new. Everything's unique. There's lots of ups, lots of downs. And so summers last forever. When we get on autopilot in later years and we get very comfortable with our routine, the brain is lazy, it shuts down, and it stops writing. And so if you're not writing new memories, you're not storing time. If you're not storing time, you're actually almost not alive. So this is the other piece of work that I'm working on is how to create those kinds of memories that are highly retrievable and packed with data. Well, you know, depending on uh, when this podcast runs, you just recently wrote an article for Strategy and about being a keynote speaker, sort of the life of a keynote speaker, which Mm -hmm. you and I know a lot about. And the reason I'm calling that out is because often people will say to me, you know, what Mm -hmm. do you get nervous before you speak? And, And I always say, I'm not nervous about the content. I'm not nervous about my ability to deliver the content. What I'm nervous about is that I would ever mm-hmm. waste someone's time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you can make a, more money, you can do a lot of things, but you can never right. get back time. So 45, you know, 20 minutes, 30, 45, 60 minutes, however long, quote unquote, the keynote is, is time right. someone has chosen to spend with you. And keeping them interested in all of those things requires almost all that you've just wrap through, right? It has to be something where you bring data to life, et cetera. And so, you know, being a keynote speaker um, and and even just speaking and sharing and communicating this kind of thinking, whether it's to the to the clients you coach or to your own keynotes and, and what else you do on, uh, you know, along the lines of this research, how have you been able to get these sort of messages to resonate for your listener audience, et cetera? Yeah, for me, it's all around the hero's journey or the the monomyth, um, tailoring storytelling to to fit into that weird but oddly powerful uh, narrative approach that uh, every great movie appears to use. Um, so this is from Joseph Campbell's work, but great stories have a lot of things in common, and and those high points, you know, taking off from the journey, the departure, having a mentor, the crisis, right? There's all stories have a plot. All plots have a crisis. So if you don't have a crisis, you don't have a plot. If you don't have a plot, you don't have a story. And if you don't have a story, nobody's going to remember it. So therefore, uh, you need to have some sort of crisis as a part of your hero's journey when you tell stories. So all of my talks are based in narrative and storytelling. And uh, all of them actually map pretty clearly to the hero's journey because it just works. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that... Um... The trick then is, you know, keeping the topic interesting for the listener, right? Knowing that listener. And so, you know, even telling your, you know, the conversation we're having today, right? It's, it's the overcome adversity, you know, you're the hero in the story, you know, you went one against all odds, you made it all the way to the Olympics, you won a medal, you know, how have you applied that later on in your life? Like that whole story and then allowing people to pick pieces on it that they can see themselves in that story and how can they apply it to their daily lives. And so, you know, with that, I'd ask just sort of some final wrap-up thoughts of what would you leave people to say, you know, hey, tomorrow is a new day. Here are a couple of things I'd 
recommend that you do based on some of the things we've been talking about, whether it's the design thinking, you know, sort of the non-strength, the time, what are the, what are the things you're leave, you know, leave behinds for people? Well, if I may, I'll tell a super short story. Sure. To that. Sure. So there I am, I've got, got the Olympic medal and I failed to make the second team. And so I became in my mind a, a one-timer first loser. So one Olympics and second place, which I know sounds crazy, but so I was massively disappointed and frankly, probably depressed for the better part of a decade. Um, but then I was invited to be the analyst for the next Olympics in Torino in 2006. Couldn't say no to that. And while I was there, a parent pulled me aside and in about 20 seconds changed the entire trajectory of my life. And, uh, and, and this is how it went down. We were at dinner the night before the gold medal round for the men's relay, my event, uh, 12 years prior. And he said, hey, John, I just want you to know that we wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for you. And I looked at him quizzically. I couldn't, couldn't put that together. And he said, you won't remember, but 12 years ago, you came to a little reception in Bay City, Michigan. You put your medal around my son's neck, Alex. He was 11 years old at the time. He'd never skated before in his life. And tomorrow, he's skating for the gold medal. And that changed everything for me. And I started announcing and I started uh, getting my daughter skating. I coached for six years and I've been heavily involved since. But here, more importantly, I'd never talked about it. And now this is all I do for a living. And so the, the, the outcome for this for me was realizing that life and memories are made up in moments, not minutes, not hours, not years. And there's turning points that happen. And if you don't take advantage of saying what needs to be said or not saying what shouldn't be said, then those turning points don't happen. And the, the beautiful denouement of that story is that Alex, the kid, he's no longer a kid, called me a year and a half ago to let me know he'd just been selected as the head coach for the U.S. speed skating team and would be taking the team to Pyeongchang. So small things can lead to great uh, outcomes, and that's the beauty of time and time perception. Well, that's an amazing story. And I think the the lesson for me in that is that you have to be willing and open to hear mm -hmm. that message you heard from him, right? Because he could have said right. it and you could right. have gone, oh, that's great, and walked away, right? And so, uh, you know, I often say that when uh, when I'm on stage and, and someone will come up after and say something like, oh, I heard you years ago, or this happened or that happened, you know, that one moment in time, someone... I said to someone else mm -hmm. at one point, like, I wanted to be you, right? You know, I say to somebody, or I heard you say this, and it totally changed this for me. And for me, there's multiple people in my career right. where I always sort of point back to um, that, that have said something. But the lesson there for me is that you were open to hear it. it you were maybe five years before that, right. or what you wouldn't have been open to hear it, like you had just turned your back on all of it, and it wouldn't have been the right time, but it must have been the right time. And he had the courage to do it. As he joked later, he was one beer away from not telling me. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, and I couldn't agree more with that, that one statement because, you know, I often say that, that people build their confidence muscles, just like athletes, mm -hmm. that having confidence when you go to the gym, you get, you don't just wake up one day and go, I'm going to go do the Ironman in the big Island of Hawaii. Right. right. <laughs> okay. I'm like, I mean, you could, if you know you couldn't get in, but let's pretend you could, you know, let's hope you don't die in the first five minutes. Right. But, you know, ultimately you have to work your way there and you go to the gym every day and you're sore and you, you know, you recover and then you go back and you're sore again and, and confidence is like that. And so I always say that when someone comes up and, and shares something like that with you, that they are being as vulnerable as they can be. Yeah. 
And the person receiving that message has to treat that vulnerability with a great level of respect and empathy and listen. Because if you shut them down or if you blow them off and you walk away, it has, unfortunately, the opportunity to impact their willingness and ability to go do that the next time. For sure, for sure. Right, that they won't walk up. And so building that confidence over time is, oh, I remember when I walked up to John, you know, this guy I didn't know, you know, and five years ago, and I didn't want to do it and I did it and it changed me, right, for these reasons or whatever it could be. And so there's so many lessons in that that one little story because it's it's a lesson from for you that you were open, but also, you know, on the the dad on on being one beer away from not telling you and, and your respect in, in taking that and using that as a catalyst to continue to make difference in people's lives, uh, even on a broader scale than you ever thought probably possible when you were turned down to go back onto the right, team. Right, right. Totally. Well, John, this has been so fantastic. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you and, and having this great conversation. So I, I'm just going to ask one last question before before we, we end our time together. But if you could have dinner with anybody alive or dead or multiple people, mm, who would it be? Dinner with anybody alive. I'm just going to go with what popped in my head, and it's going to sound probably odd, but uh, Rivers Cuomo of Weezer. Um, <laughs> and the reason is his childhood, I think, was much like mine. And his songs, he has a song called Troublemaker, and he describes a scene where he was in San Francisco with his friends, and he would they would get going down a hill, and then he'd take the keys out of the steering wheel and throw them in the back seat. And then the trick was they had to get him back to him in time for him to unlock the steering wheel. And and this is a true story. And for some reason, I find that so compelling. Like I just I think it's hysterical, and uh, I never did anything quite that crazy as a youth, but there were a few things not too far away. So I think he'd be fascinating. Well, that's a first. You know, we get things like, you know, Einstein and Plato and Gandhi, but that <laughs> was a first. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining me today on the What's Next podcast. I hope you uh, enjoyed it as much as I did. And to all the listeners out there, what's the best way to keep in touch with everything you're doing, John? That's simply johnkcoyle.com. Everything's there, TEDx videos, uh, my speaking schedule and my blog and everything else. Uh, new books coming out counterclockwise, uh, designing endless summers. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to it. Thank you again, John, for joining us. Thank you, Tiffany. Wow. What a fantastic conversation with John. I could have kept that going for hours. So many great stories and anecdotes from an Olympic athlete to a successful business coach and all the things in between. I hope you were able to take a lot of great lessons out there and apply them to your personal life with design thinking and understanding what your non-strengths are, but more importantly, to double down on your strengths. You have to recognize what those are for you. Make sure you're trying to solve the right problem, which is not necessarily the problem other people think of you and think for you. So really make sure that you understand what your superpowers are, focus on those, be the best version of yourself every day. I hope you enjoyed our time today. Thank you for spending a little bit of, of it with me on the What's Next podcast. Subscribe, share with your friends, leave a review, and I'll look forward to having you back next time. 